0: You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past.
1: Let's begin.
0: This might sound a little silly, but trust me. The story will be much better if you play along. If you're driving a car, you might want to pull over. Okay, now close your eyes and picture your diner. Not just any old diner, a diner that you have fond memories of from your childhood, or your teenage years, or your 20s, or a place that you still eat at all the time. Are you visualizing that diner now? Good, I just want you to marinate in those thoughts for a few moments. Think about the images that are popping into your head and how those memories are making you feel. I'm going to move on with the story, but I just want you to remember how you were feeling a minute ago because there's something very unique about the diner in America. And this episode of East Bay Yesterday is going to explore that concept by looking at one beloved Oakland diner that was just demolished a few weeks ago. Biff's. If you don't know it, Biff's was the abandoned building that looked like a giant flying saucer spaceship at the corner of Broadway and 27th. And now it's gone. And even though it closed over two decades ago, a lot of people are very, very sad about that. The reason I know people are sad about that is because the day a demolition crew started tearing down biffs a few weeks ago i rode my bike over to the site and took some pictures i live a few blocks away and i'd also taken some pictures of biffs before the demolition started i posted a few of these before and after photos to the oakland history group on facebook and the response was massive the pictures were shared dozens and dozens of times There were hundreds of responses, and the comments, well, a lot of people had a lot to say. I'd always been intrigued by this crazy-looking building, and this response made me even more curious about what made this place so special. The day the demolition started, the wrecking crew left most of the main structure of Biff's intact. They had ripped up the trees surrounding it and knocked down one of the walls, but it was mostly still there. I knew that this would be my last chance to experience Biff's, or at least what was left of it, in any direct way. So that night, I, I jumped a big chain link fence and snuck in. I'll get into what I saw later, but it was ugly, and it left me feeling empty. I realized that if I ever wanted to understand what made this diner so special, I would need to talk to the people who loved it the people who poured their hearts out sharing memories under those photos I'd posted. So I reached out to some of those folks, and today's episode will feature their stories, and also some thoughts on why diners make so many of us feel kind of warm and fuzzy inside. I'm Limo Donahue, and this is East Bay Yesterday. Stay tuned. Uh my name's Dale Everingham and I grew up in Oakland. That's the voice of Dale Everingham. He's currently a music engineer and he's worked with everyone from Destiny's Child to E40. But his very first job was something much more humble.
2: I had a paper out. I grew up in the hills, um call that Montclair area above the 13. And um so it was Relatively hard work, but uh, we—it was the Oakland Tribune route that I had. It was uh, my first
0: entrepreneurial endeavors. You know, I probably was—I did it from probably at eleven until thirteen or fourteen, something like that. So, this was back in the mid nineteen seventies, back when most people got their news from papers. Dale told me that his main route was delivering the afternoon edition. Yes, they used to put out a newspaper twice a day, if you can believe that. Dale would ride around his neighborhood, on his bicycle, wearing one of those old-school newspaper sacks with the pouches. He also had another route delivering the big weekend edition on Sunday mornings. Remember that? When the Sunday paper was as big as the phone book? So, because Dale couldn't carry the Sunday papers in his shoulder pouch, he would either attach a cart to his bike, or, if he got really lucky, he would get some help. Here's Dale again. My dad would um, take me on some Sundays, not always, in the convertible or in the VW bus with the door open so we could, we could nail, the, nail the shots, and then we'd go out to Biff's um, often. Going out to Biff's was Dale's reward for working, for taking on some responsibility. My first memories of eating at a diner was going to breakfast after Sunday morning mass with my dad and my little brother and sister. If we didn't screw around in church, my dad would reward us with a meal at our favorite restaurant, Carson's. And I know it was our favorite restaurant, because it was the only restaurant he would take us to, since we were all little kids. Remember at the beginning of this episode, when I asked you to close your eyes and picture your diner? I bet a few of you conjured up memories like this. Being a little kid, sitting at that big booth with your parents, so excited because eating out was something new something different. You got to eat at a restaurant, and that felt special. It made you feel kind of important, ordering from the menu, telling the waitress with the big beehive hairdo what you wanted. I think this is one of the reasons why we have such intense feelings about diners, because for so many of us, it was a place of personal milestones. Diners were one of the first places we had to interact with strangers in a social setting because most of our parents weren't taking us out to fancy restaurants or whatever. They took us to diners, and that made us happy.
2: Okay, my name is Marilyn Syrup. It was Marilyn Job when I was young. I grew up in East Oakland off of High Street, I am a third-generation Oaklander.
0: That is the voice of Marilyn Syro. Marilyn was a Biff's regular in the mid-to-late 1960s, when she was in her late teens and early 20s. A minute ago, I was talking about how diners are so special, because so many of us experienced personal milestones there. Well... Maryland's diner-related coming-of-age stories are much different than the kind you had with your parents when you were a little kid drawing on the paper placemat with crayons. Remember how when you and your friends first got your driver's licenses? How exciting it was to be able to cruise the town without your parents and stay out late? Of course, before you're old enough to go out to the bars, one of the places you probably ended up quite often was a diner, because at that age there just weren't that many options. But it's still cool. You're learning to spread your wings a little. Think about all the TV shows like Saved by the Bell and Beverly Hills 90210, where teenage characters spend so much of their time in diners. And of course, once you do start getting a little older and going out for, hmm, maybe a few cocktails, the diner goes from being a chill place to hang out to a crucial late night, after the club, destination. This is Marilyn's story. And I have a feeling it will sound very familiar to some of you party animals.
2: I always hung around, um, hung out down in Jack Lennon Square, because that's where the clubs were. When I was with my girlfriends after working and stuff, we'd always head on down to uh, Jack Lennon Square, because that was a hot spot, hoping to meet guys.
0: (laughs) At the time, Marilyn was working an office job near Jack Lennon Square. And she lived with a friend over on 27th Avenue. Just a quick side note. Her neighbor at the time was future basketball Hall of Famer and underhand free throw king Rick Barry, who was playing for the Oakland Oaks at the time. Marilyn said he used to flirt with her roommate because he liked blondes. Okay, back to the story. Now, picture this. You're about 20 years old. It's Friday night, and you just finished a long week of work.
2: After we got off work, we'd go home, get cleaned up, then we'd go over to my mother's for a free meal. And <laughs> typical, you know, teenagers. And I wasn't even, well, I was just barely 21. I had just turned 20. Well, no, I wasn't 21 when we first started doing that. We had phony IDs because originally we worked at Metropolitan Life Insurance in San Francisco and we made our own IDs. They looked really legit. <laughs> We had some friends take our pictures and put it on. I mean, they were really good-looking IDs. So we'd go, uh, we'd go home over to my mom's and get a free meal because she was always willing to feed us because we never had any money in the apartment. We had uh, liquor and stuff to serve boyfriends if they came over, and that was pretty much it. <laughs> uh, we'd all arrange what time we were going to meet, and where we were going to meet, and we'd head on down and we'd go to the. We kind of made the rounds because it was we always went to the casuals. Sometimes we'd go up to Castaway and have a drink. Then we'd go over to uh, King Richard's, which was a big one then. And we'd always end up at the On Broadway. That was our favorite because we got to be friends with the the guys in the band. And and we were kind of regulars. In fact, even one night, one of my friends who was the...
0: The names of the clubs are different, but we all know this story. It's 2 o'clock. The bar owners have turned on those damn lights but you're, you're feeling good, and you don't want the night to end. Marilyn told me that there was a, quote, deplorably named restaurant called Sambo's that a lot of people would go to. But she didn't like this place because it was always really crowded, and they rushed people in and out. And If you've ever been to Buttercup Grill on Broadway and 3rd, that's where Sambo's used to be. Anyway, here's Marilyn explaining her post-nightclub ritual.
2: Sometimes we'd meet some guys at the bars, and they'd say, "You want to go get a bite to eat?" We'd say, "Sure, we'll meet you down at Biff's." So we'd go down there, and it would be kind of a get to get to know somebody place too, as well as you know, sitting with your friends. Sometimes, oh, there would be so many of us, we'd take over three or four booths together, you know, and and we'd probably kind of rowdy, I imagine, loud. But we were just—it was all in good fun, you know. We just talk a lot and as typical for girls that age we do a lot of giggling and (laughs) i'd always have the same thing i was stuck on i'd have waffles and french fries and a
0: chocolate milkshake there's this phrase that's come into vogue in recent years comfort food if waffles fries and milkshakes aren't comfort food i don't know what the hell is You could probably include pies and meatloaf and burgers in this category too and soup the soup du jour these are the quintessential comfort foods and they're all staples of any decent american diner it makes sense that a lot of the most traditional diner food has come to be known as comfort food because comfort isn't just physical if anything It's more about being emotionally satiated. And when you're trying to put yourself in a good mood or make yourself feel better, what better well to draw from than late night diner memories? Marilyn shared this one little anecdote with me. And it's nothing special, nothing extraordinary, but I loved it. Because again, this is something we have all done. A few of the details may be a little different in your version, but come on. Don't tell me this doesn't ring some bells.
2: I remember one night when we all went down there. For some reason, there were a whole bunch of people in the parking lot yakking and stuff. And somebody had a boombox. And we all started dancing. (laughs) We were in the parking lot dancing and carrying on before we even went into Biff's. And um, we decided that uh, finally we were making enough fools of ourselves. Maybe we better get in and have something to eat. But it was fun. We did it for about a half hour and just, just act. We didn't even know these people, but we were just acting silly, not kind of not wanting the night to end yet, you know, because we'd been down dancing so much and stuff. So uh, here we are out in the parking lot, just, uh, there were a whole bunch of us and we were just dancing and having a good time and and it was kind of neat because even though we didn't know them, it was like we did, you know, and then we all got, they came, we invited them to come in with us, so they came and we all sat down. and ate and talked some more. and It had that atmosphere all the time that you could just talk to anybody. It was really innocent fun then, I realized. But we got loud, we were laughing a lot, going from booth to booth and, you know, at each other, you know, all the stupid things kids do, and everybody was just uh, happy, and, you know, we were all flower children, so love and peace and all that stuff. <laughs> there was one, one waitress that was just really, really nice, and she always recognized us, you know, and she'd wait on us. She was so nice to us, and she got to the point she remembered what a lot of us were going to get, and she'd just say the usual, and we'd say, ah <laughs> and, you know, um, and uh, she wasn't that much older than us either. That's the funny part. But uh, then, you know, a few years makes a difference, you think. <laughs> she might have been in her mid-20s or something, and we thought, whoa, she's old. <laughs>
0: uh, remember when you thought mid-20s was old? Now the only time I think that's true is when I'm talking about a nice single malt scotch. hey yo. Just kidding. I usually drink the cheap stuff. I'm going to just let Marilyn finish up here.
2: It got to be a regular thing, you know, that we'd plan on. Usually it was either Friday night or Saturday night, but most often it was Friday night. that We'd go there and we knew we would end up there. and We'd stay until pretty early in the morning, um, you know, 4, 5 o'clock. And then we'd, you know, everybody kind of poop out. And after working all day and everything, you know, then we'd go home. But planning on doing it the following week, it got to be a regular thing. Then almost every Friday or Saturday night, that's where you could find us. The square and then and Once in a blue moon, we'd venture over to San Francisco, do something different. But uh, most of the time, that's where we were. And that's where I met my husband was at the on-Broadway.
0: You can probably guess where Marilyn's story goes from here. When she met her husband, she stopped going out to the clubs and staying out all night as much. They eventually got married, moved out to San Leandro, and started going to diners out there, but more likely for breakfast, as opposed to a 3 a.m. giggle fest. More recently, Marilyn and her husband Mike celebrated their 47th wedding anniversary, and now they take their grandkids out to diners, and. Watch the next generation building little pyramids on the tables with those creamer thingies and trying to hang spoons off their noses and all that kinds of stuff that kids have been doing since forever. And that's how it goes.
1: Hi, my name is Carol Rose and I worked at this in the 70s.
0: That's the voice of Carol Rose. Her family came to Oakland about 120 years ago. She grew up in the Laurel district. She worked in many restaurants all across Oakland, and she always worked night shifts. It was like after 10 o'clock, the shades went
1: down in Oakland. You know, we didn't get many families after 10 o'clock. But we we got all the, the real people, I guess you'd call them.
0: Carol's personality is pretty much what you'd expect from someone who worked night shifts in Oakland for many decades. Dark sense of humor, a bit grizzled, friendly, fearless.
1: Graveyard Shift is a unique group of people. We're afraid of nothing. Some people call us the zombies of the night because we we don't do things normally. Um, I had a gun pointed in my face. I've been threatened I don't know how many
0: times. No, I wasn't scared. I should add that nobody ever threatened to shoot Carol at Biff's. Apparently, that was a much more common occurrence when she worked at the Denny's out by the airport. Carol has mostly fond memories of her late nights at Biff's.
1: There was this one waitress I worked with, Arlene, and I have no idea what happened, but it was like every time we looked at each other, we started laughing. And sometimes we just... Everybody would be laughing in the place, and nobody knew why they were laughing. It was just her and I started laughing, and then you would laugh, and then somebody else would laugh. But we had some good times there.
0: Just a reminder that this was during the 1970s. So, you know, I could take a guess at why some of those people were laughing. But it wasn't all fun and games. Carol told me that when the late-night drunks were getting too rowdy, she was the enforcer.
1: I was the waitress that if there was a group misbehaving, I was their last resort. If I went up there and I would go up and tell the people, hey, you know, you're not going to get waited on. I'm your last resort. You keep screwing around, you're not going to be waited on, period. Nine times out of ten, I was able to wait on them.
0: And... and uh calm things down. The way Carol described it, working the graveyard shift at Biff's sounded like living inside a crazy real-life soap opera night after night, and the cast of characters ranged from Black Panthers to Hell's Angels to police officers and, of course, lots and lots of drunk people.
1: Oh, there were many fights at Biff's inside and out. And uh, we had a lot of chases around there because of Lake Merritt right
0: there. You know, people would run toward the lake trying to hide. So, Carol got to see it all. Action. Comedy. Romance. And yes, plenty of drama. One night, the drama got way too personal. Remember how Carol said that she was the waitress who they would put with the rowdiest groups? Well... That's how she ended up making a very disturbing discovery.
1: This is how I found out my sister in law was cheating because I had a. They came and told me there was a group in the back acting up, and some of the people were being a little risque in their actions. And I went back there to talk to the group and tell them they needed to straighten up. And there was my sister in law was one of the ones being risque.
0: What was she doing?
1: Well, they were almost having sex acts in the booth wow and you talk about now that's the probably the first time in my life I've been stunned to the point of not saying anything
0: what did you eventually end up doing
1: I told them they weren't going to be waiting on and I walked away they had to leave I didn't I never told my brother you know and, but I could never go to the house again because I could never look at her but I really wanted to just punch the shit out of her
0: Did did she know that you saw her
1: she knew I saw her, but she also knew the family loyalty that I wouldn't go to my brother with it. Because it would have broken his heart. He, he was, you know, they had four kids. He was crazy about her.
0: Wow. And she she must have known that you worked there. I mean, it seems crazy that she would do that.
1: You know what? I don't think, I don't, I, if she knew,
0: she probably didn't know the shift I worked on. Don't worry. I know what you're thinking, and I won't leave you hanging. Of course, I had to ask if her brother ever found out.
1: Well, the the funny part about that, about two years later, my brother caught her with somebody and he left her. And it's funny because he has three daughters and a son and all three daughters look like him. The son doesn't look like him. And I have to be honest, the son looks like the guy she was with that night. Never said anything to my brother. And one day he, we were talking and he says, you know. Everybody tells me Robert's not mine. And I'm sitting there like, oh shoot. He said, but he was born when I was there. I raised him he's mine. And I thought, good, I don't have to say anything.
0: Earlier, I was talking about how many of our personal milestones are connected to diners. And of course, not all these moments are happy occasions. Sometimes, especially when we're all alone late at night, life sucks. And diners and the people who work in them are there for us in our time of need. Here's Carol again. That's the real American life. You know,
1: on Graveyard, you get some sad people in there and they they talk about their life and they talk about their ifs and their buts and their bad choices and their good choices but it's 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 like american life
0: that's where you sit and have a cup of coffee and you talk after a frustrating night at a crappy job or a long drive on a lonely road or after you just got your heart ripped out or after getting some really bad news or just because it's cold out, or because you can't afford a therapist, or when you're sad and you don't even know why, or tired of walking the streets and you just wanna sit down and have a cup of coffee and maybe a piece of pie and hear another human being's voice tell you that everything is gonna be fine. Well, sometimes there's only one place to go. Well, if I could help somebody, I helped them. It kind of sounds like, in in some ways, you were almost like an amateur psychiatrist. Well, you become that when you
1: work in the restroom, especially graveyard. That's when you get all the sad stories. So, you end up, when you work in a restaurant, unless you're a very cold person, you end up like a psychologist sometimes.
0: It, what, in Biff's, when you were working the graveyard shift, what were most of the sad stories about?
1: A couple's breaking up. Uh, somebody being lonesome afterwards,
0: relationship problems, yeah, you know, stuff like that. It's not just that diners are there for us when we're young and when we're not so young and when we're happy and sad and sloppy and mad. It's that diners are there for everybody, the so-called public, or at least they should be. Here's Marilyn again.
2: Maybe because there's no class distinction when you go in. Um, if you go to a particular restaurant, sometimes it's more upper class or whatever. But everybody goes to diners, so you're all there to have a meal and enjoy your camaraderie with your friends. And it's uh, it's still that way in some places. Everybody's equal there. Um, you feel more that way because everybody goes there, so it's okay.
0: This hasn't always been the case. I'm sure that those of you listeners of color out there have probably had the unfortunate experience of getting some not so friendly service. The same is probably true if you're queer. And I think this is why diners, or as they used to be known in some places, lunch counters, were such a huge battleground early on in the civil rights movement during the 1950s. Because The right to be able to sit down at a diner and get the same service as everybody else isn't just practical, it's symbolic. Diners are the closest thing America has to a national dining room, and everybody wants and deserves a seat at the table. One of the reasons why local preservationists Fought to save Biffs from the wrecking ball is because it was one of the last surviving examples of googie architecture in the Bay Area. When Biffs was built in 1963, America was a very optimistic place. It was the dawn of NASA and the space race, atomic energy, and automation. People were excited about this new technological era and architects created futuristic buildings that embodied this excitement. A lot of googie buildings looked like or were inspired by spaceships. With its flying saucer exterior, Biff's was a perfect example of this style. Marilyn pretty much nails it.
2: That was such a unique place with its shape and everything, because there was nothing like it, like the Jetsons. Sometimes we used to joke about that, that we're, we're in the Jetsons' spaceship. <laughs>
0: Of course, the national mood is much different now. Most people aren't feeling very optimistic, and if we're talking about the Bay Area, new architecture isn't as fun or awe-inspiring as it used to be. In fact, a lot of new buildings are pretty ugly. And this, juxtaposed with all these gorgeous old buildings either being boarded up and decaying or being completely demolished makes it easy to slip into a sad spiral of nostalgia.
2: It was like a landmark. I don't know why they didn't figure out a way to keep it. I, I You know, I've lived in Oakland since I was two years old, So it, and I just turned 70. So it's like, whoa. Um, it's sad. It's just so sad. And so much neglect and so much bullshit. Pardon my French. It it's exactly how I feel. It's just. Why do they let good places go down the tubes like that? Why can't it remain the same? I don't understand. It's bad enough that they leave it empty for so long, but when they finally demolish it, it's was just like a little part of you goes when it was your your memories, you know? It, it's, I felt sad. And uh, I've seen so many places torn down and, and locked up, boarded up, and it's like, why does it have to happen that way?
0: Corporate America is more than happy to indulge this nostalgia, since they know we're willing to pay for it. This is why there are so many diner chains playing up the kind of 1950s paper hat, checkerboard tiles, ponytails, and bobby socks doo-wop style in malls and tourist districts. But those aren't real diners. Come on, you know that. On the other end of the pop culture spectrum, there's Edward Hopper's, 1942 painting Night Hawks that name might not ring a bell but you'd know it if you saw it it's that painting of three customers in a quiet well-lit diner at night there's also a server wearing all white leaning over the counter this image has been parodied by everyone from the Simpsons to Howard Stern and it's decorated countless dorm room walls I was at the Chicago Art Institute a few weeks ago and I got to see the original up close. It's easy to see why Nighthawks has endured as one of the most iconic American paintings of all time. You look at it, and it just makes sense. We've all been there. But there's something mysterious about it, too. That's why it's a masterpiece, and not just a pretty picture. It's simultaneously beautiful and haunting. And speaking of haunting, I didn't mention this earlier, but the night that I snuck into Biff's right before it was demolished, that night was Halloween, and it was a very dark and stormy night. After I jumped the fence and ran inside the building, it did feel spooky. The only sound was dripping rain. The smell was mold and decay, and what I saw was destruction. The floor had already been ripped out. The structure had been gutted. It didn't look like a place where so many happy memories had been made. It looked like death. I didn't spend very long there. After I took a few pictures, I jumped the fence and started walking home in the rain. After the adrenaline wore off, I realized that I'd hurt my wrist a little during the fence hop. The pains in my arm made me feel old. As soon as I got home, I started writing this episode. I wanted to save the memory. Thank you for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. For this episode, I want to thank everybody who liked and shared and commented on the Biff's photos that I posted to the Oakland History Facebook page, especially Dale Everingham, Marilyn Syrup, and Carol Rose. If you're hungry for more stories about diners, I highly recommend listening to the This American Life episode titled 24 Hours at the Golden Apple. Google it. As always, I want to give a shout out to everybody who is working hard to keep Oakland history alive through projects like the Oakland Wiki, the Oakland Heritage Alliance, the Oakland Cultural Heritage Survey, and of course, the local history room at the Oakland Library. The East Bay Yesterday website is still a work in progress, but to see photos for the stories, follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Music for this episode was provided by Broke for Free, audio binger tab and anatech and please subscribe to the show on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment and a rating it means a lot and if you know someone who you think would like this show but doesn't really know how to listen to podcasts do a good deed today and help them figure out how if you have feedback on today's show or you want to suggest a topic for a future episode drop me a line on the social media channel of your choice. May your coffee always be steamy. May your biscuits always be buttery. And may your eggs always be sunny side up. Tune in next week for more stories of East Bay Yesterday.